Welcome to Transit Zone, the podcast from Coronavirus World. Politics and culture, analysis and critique. In the age of the pandemic, I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Margot Kingston in Narang on Gold Coast. And I'm Tim Dunlop in Melbourne. Tim, I first met you, I think, through one of your books. It was called The New Front Page, which I used as a textbook for my journalism and media students. And they loved it. But who are you really? <laughs> well, Peter, I'm a writer and I'm based here in Melbourne. And yes, my first book was about journalism. But since then, I've kind of branched out into other areas, particularly around technology and the future of work. So I probably am my books, actually. Margot, you and I haven't actually met face-to-face yet, which is a bit strange, isn't it? But we did meet often on the radio. You used to come on my evening show on ABC Local Radio. Just bring us up to speed where you are at the moment. Well, I'm a burnt-out hack. I've been burnt out for a long time, but I used to sort of be very mainstream. And I ended up running like a virtual online newspaper on the Sydney Morning Herald called Web Diary which, you know, was the love of my life, I guess. Written a couple of books, retired hurt when mainstream media didn't find me um, acceptable enough. And since then, I've sort of been a citizen journo, Twitter addict, got into sort of weird political campaigning. I don't know what to call myself now. I think I would define myself by growing up in Sir Joe's police state. My obsessions come from that and my political interests come from that and my neuroses come from that. As you both know, I've been an ABC broadcaster for the bulk of my working life, but with detours as a graduate of the Australian Film and Television School, got into television and film as well, was one of the foundational researchers and producers for Liftoff, that multi-million dollar early childhood television series on the ABC. Done a lot of travel around Australia to the remote parts of Australia, including the very northern tip of Australia. Built my own image of what this great continent is all about. Wildlife and wildlife photography is my passion, not only here in Australia, but also in Africa, which we've visited many times now to look at the megafauna and look at that remarkable countryside as well. Tim, you're almost in sight of the the cityscape of the CBD in the arts precinct of Melbourne. I'm in the Burbs in the northeast of Melbourne. Much warmer and more subtropical is Margot on the hinterland of the Gold Coast there. Our first episode of Transit Zone. Tim, we've got this podcast together over the last couple of weeks. We've talked to each other a lot. What do you see as the main aims of this podcast series? Yeah, we've been talking about it over the last few weeks and tossing around different ideas about how we approach it. I guess what I'm after is just some sort of meaningful discussion amongst ourselves, but also with our guests that we're starting to line up and who will be joining us in future episodes. I just want some intelligent discussions that are deliberative and maybe even argumentative, but that aren't just combative for the sake of it. I really just want to pick the brains of people we don't normally hear from in the mainstream media. We want to hear, you know, their personal experiences with this weird time that we're going through as well. We're sort of drawing on their expertise for sure, but not just that. Margot, you were the main spur to our having a go at a podcast series. How do you see it? Well, I see it as a, um, a means to stay sane in, in self-isolation by myself in, uh, in, in my home. I've withdrawn from the day-to-day news on coronavirus world. I'm sort of experiencing it personally and, and, and doing my own thing. I want to stay sane, just dip my toe in. 
just like to have really interesting conversations with interesting people that I like. <laughs> and as everyone knows, um, I'm very into participatory media and, and I'm hoping that we could get audio contributions from, from listeners. I'm hoping that listeners can suggest stuff. And maybe even um, listeners could come on as guests. You know, I see it as a sort of a very open, evolving space once a week that I'm just happy to, to see what happens. For me, I just want some conversations, as Tim described, that are not built around a binary, that it's an either-or situation. I want them to be multipolar, prismatic, if you like. That's what I'm making for. Conversations, yes, as you say, Tim, a bit argumentative, but in that great creative synthesizing sort of way. That's the attraction for me in sitting down with you guys and great guests and drawing in our listeners, exactly as Margot just says. That's what we're aiming for here in the Transit Zone. This is our first episode. Tim, one of the things we've decided to do are short audio essays from time to time, and you're first. I've just jotted down a few thoughts that have come to me as we've gone into lockdown, because this has been a big part of the work that I've done over the last couple of years. So when the crisis started, my inbox filled with emails from every company I'd ever heard of, assuring me they were responding well to the growing pandemic and that their product was just what I needed at this difficult time. And then the cancellations started coming, including a speaking gigs that I do. So I was now officially losing income and suddenly a high-functioning internet connection was as vital an infrastructure as water and electricity. So it was work from home, be entertained at home, order groceries from home if you have a home. What happens when we turn this private space into our everything space? For 2,000 years, much of our understanding of work, of gender, of power and of civilization has been a negotiation of public versus private space. Public life for the ancient Greeks was the purposeful creation of a place, both physical and legal, where politics could be practised. It was therefore the highest aspiration of the citizen to exist in this public world because that was the sphere of freedom removed from the necessity of labour, which was conducted in the home. Private was privation. So women were confined to the private which is precisely why the distinction between public and private has always been a feminist issue. But now here we are, swaddled inside, caught between public and private, and all the ramifications this has for politics and life more generally. How do we organise? How do we protest? How do we do politics? What is public and private in an era of social distancing and quarantine? the blurring of public and private inevitably favours the authoritarian over the Democrat. And so this corona confinement has shone a bright and fresh light on ancient arguments. Well, what strikes me about that, Tim, is the whole thing about you're a different person in the home than you are at work and you have a completely different identity. And it's really funny, I was watching 7.30 report last night and there's this this guy, you know, trying to educate his kid at home and a little bit awkward, but 
hey, what a beautiful thing to do in theory. To have a, a space where your work is is not separate from your home, I, I think is potentially really life-changing. There's two way, two things I've read about to cope when you work at home. One is you get up, you get dressed, you go through all your routines, you go into your separate room. The other is, hey, you're free. Work in your pyjamas, on your lounge room with your kid by your side. And we're, we're sort of working out all, all that stuff as we go, being in, in close confines, being actually breathing as a family without separation, I, I just think is, um, is fascinating and, and, and very problematic, obviously, in, in terms of, of family stresses. Tim, that public-private border boundary you're talking about there is very interesting on the television in that media world, isn't it? Because we're seeing authority figures like professors of epidemiology, a little bit dressed down with stuff around them and trying to look like they're in their library, but not always succeeding. So we're seeing an enormous shift, aren't we, in tone and style in terms of current affairs interviewing on our televisions? Yeah, look, I agree with some of what Margot said, that there is the potential there for it to be you know, a real rebirth and and there is something potentially nice about that blurring of the spaces, but it's also hugely, hugely problematic. A lot of it depends on the sort of work that you do. I think a lot of people are finding it hellishly difficult to, you know, be conducting their work Zoom meetings in between or simultaneously with having their kids being taught remotely as well maybe in the same room, at the same dining room table, etc. We just haven't worked all this shit out at the moment because part of what I was getting at there is, you know, these were issues that already existed and they were driven in part by the technology. So, you know, I know, for instance, the nature of the work that my wife does. She often gets emails from clients at midnight or 11 o'clock, like literally when we're in bed. And because of the nature of that work, she feels obliged to respond in real time. So, you know, we've already had that blurring and that, you know, that's just, that can be a deeply problematic blurring between work and free time where they just bleed into each other and you literally become your work. So consequently, at this moment, a lot more people are going through that sort of thing. I don't think there's any clear answer and I don't think we can say that it's a net positive or a net negative at this stage. But it will be influential. I, I read something um, oh, yesterday, I think, about some major companies in the US saying, hey, we're there now. We're going we're gonna to save money. We're going to close down some offices and, and we're going to move to that. And, of course, that has ramifications that I find attractive with regard to climate change. I mean, this whole thing about seeing a blue sky in China and, and, and India and smelling fresh air in, in Sydney and animals and fish uh, arriving again. I mean, these are things that it would be wonderful not to completely lose. However, as you say, the the disparities in circumstances become absolutely extreme in this situation. Like what say you live in a one-bedroom apartment with your partner or a, a two-bedroom little house with two little kids I mean, whoa. Exactly right. So I think I think it goes beyond discussions about that sort of space. It's it's about the, the nature of the work that we do. I'd be much more comfortable with these sorts of changes that we're 
kind of being forced on us now that we're having this real-time experiment with at the moment if the general vibe around our relationship with work was a little more civilised than it is in general. So, for instance, that it was the norm to work four days a week rather than five days a week or seven days a week or something like that. You know, changes to work hours would be are, are an important aspect of this as well. I, I get really worried that by blurring those lines, you just put people under enormous pressure and you don't actually enhance the quality of life. You just expand the opportunities for work and any exploitation that comes with that. And Tim, aged care, childcare, the frontliners, the people are dealing with it right as we speak now. And of course, something you also pointed to was the increase in our image of hours, how many hours we work. If you're working at home, you are pretty much on duty all the time, aren't you? Yeah, it's permanently on, I reckon. And and if you've got those other sorts of duties, which, you know, we have to recognise fall largely on women, it's an enormous burden to put on people with no respite from any of that. Do we really think this time, not just about work hours and the things we're describing now, I guess an ongoing theme in our discussions over the next week's is going to be just how shaping or reshaping this experience in coronavirus world actually will be, Margot. Yeah, well, I, I just had a thought, you know. I didn't really know I had an entrepreneurial bone in my body, but <laughs> you could do a sort of a, a local we, we work type thing where you have like suburban hubs where you have little offices or whatever and that all different employees could pay a, a small rent or whatever. And so you, you could get the distance, but much more local. You know, it'll be great to see those sorts of experiments happen, and I, mm. I think they will. And again, it's just going to be down to the nature of the work that people are doing. Here, Margot, here's a question for you. As a journalist, on one level, journalism lends itself to remote working really easily, and I, I would imagine a lot of journalists, especially freelancers, work independently of the newsroom, so to speak. But there's a real advantage in being in that sort of environment, isn't there, as a journo? Well, when I was in the Canberra Bureau, the SMH and the then the Age, th- there's something about the vibe. There's something about the to and fro and the excitement and the, the reaching consensus or having arguments. It's irreplaceable. What I found when I, I did web diaries, even though I went to the office in, in Sydney, I lived in an enclosed world. I mean, you, you can get completely sucked into virtual right. reality and that hurts balance. I guess it depends on the on the sort of work. I mean, I, I can imagine work where it's absolutely imperative that you have a, a, a creative vibe. But then again, you know, what I'm finding is I'm actually connecting more intimately with, with friends on FaceTime. I mean, I, I've done FaceTime for the first time with so many people being in, in self-isolation on, on my own. I'm actually having more more interesting in-depth conversations when you've got that social distance you know you know it's I know all this sounds a bit weird but you know I just think everyone's feeling weird at the moment yeah no absolutely what about you Peter what do you reckon about broadcasting or doing journalism at a distance rather than at the ABC on Sturt Street or something well, that's interesting because there is the, the same sort of vibe when you're broadcasting. There's that getting ready, you know, going to the down to the studio. There's a whole ritual surrounding that. And to some extent, I've recreated that at home here. I've got my own little broadcast studio right here now. And broadcasting is a sort of a lonely act anyway, in many ways. You've got your producers out on the other side of the glass normally, but 
you're locked on to your listener. It's not a million miles away from that right now. So That's exactly right. And that's what happened with Smith Web Diary. I stopped interacting around with anyone else around the place and I was just intensely interacting with people who were reading and contributing huh. and I just loved it. How has your image of the the world out there shifted and changed, if it has, uh, during this last six weeks? I think just sensing I'm a little bit more scared than you guys. I noticed you've been out, Tim, you actually went to an electrical shop to get your mic for this broadcast or this podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't go out at all, really, very little. We take the dog out to a paddock. But of course, I've got a partner who's immunosuppressed and I'm having weird dreams as well, I've got to tell you, Um, really (laughs) weird dreams. Your image of the world, have you become more aware of it? I'm in a particular situation. My mother, who I've, I've lived with for, for 14 years, uh, died in February. And I'm living in our home now, my home, and, and packing up all her stuff and my stuff because I've got to leave my home because it's being sold. So this is a, you know, a, a very difficult thing to, to do alone. And the way I'm doing it is after just being overwhelmed by coronavirus news. I mean, you know, it's the biggest story I've ever watched or or been a part of, and we're all part of it. I've gone inward and it's just too much. And so I basically, now and then I'll watch SBS News, I'll watch Insiders once a week, and I'll listen to The Professor and The Hack once a week. That's it, basically, for my Australian politics. And so I'm, you know, reflecting on and, and and looking at, at my life and, and, and what's going on and who's in it and who's, who's important a lot more than the outside stuff, which has basically been all my life as a journalist. So I'm finding it just an absolutely extraordinary experience and I wish I'd done it 15 years earlier. And I thank coronavirus well for that. And I also feel, which is a hard thing to say, like I, I wanted my mother to live to forever, but... I'm so glad she died in February. I'm so glad that I could nurse her at home. I'm so glad she could be surrounded by family. I'm so glad she could go out and enjoy life. And I feel so much for people whose whose loved ones are in palliative care now. I, that, to me, that is the one of the most emotional downsides of um, of, of how we're living now. Yeah, without a doubt. I think that um, when all this started, I was literally... The next day, that weekend that it all closed down, I was heading up to Sydney to go and spend a week or whatever with my mum who lives up there. And, of course, we had to stop that. And, you know, we, we talk on the phone. She doesn't really do Skype or anything techy like that. <laughs> but so it's, it's largely the phone. And, you know, she's doing fine, but it's isolating. She, she lives in a centre, but independently within that centre. And I don't know when I'm going to have that opportunity again. You know, none of us do really. So I, I agree with you. I think that especially, I just can't imagine people who've got family members in palliative care, etc. I'm also very conscious of your situation too, Peter, in terms of having someone who's immunosuppressed in the family at this time. It just must be extra harrowing. I've just become so conscious of my fingertips, what I've touched. Um, we, we have a very uh, rigorous protocol here when things arrive we do get a lot of grocery deliveries now we do, we wash everything we leave stuff in quarantine out the back so there's a definite level of fear in our household my daughter and my son-in-law we we stand at a distance we haven't hugged them since yes. the lockdown also bouncing off what margot said I, we really ration how much television we watch because 
we watch the news. You sort of have to watch. We tend to watch SBS news first. And we look at each other and just say together, enough, enough. Yes. We're listening to people who have lost their parents and couldn't even say goodbye to them properly, etc. That's that avalanche of dire news. And, and you become aware of your own desensitization, don't you? you? The numbness. And you think, that's not right. I just don't want to feel that numb about the reality out there. I don't know. I don't know if it's numbness because we're all experiencing experiencing um, upheaval and we're all grieving for what we've lost and discovering things that we we'd lost because we were so into the outside world for me it's not numbness it's about I think it's about what what your topic's about it's about finding a new narrative about the meaning of life this is transit zone the podcast from coronavirus world like Tim and Margot I've written down a few thoughts I want to share It's about the sea of competing stories and narratives we're swimming in here in coronavirus world. We humans are Homo fabulatus, the storytelling animal. Maybe humpback whales do tell enticing tales via their songs. We'll probably never know. But we as a species are utterly immersed in narratives coming at us every which way during most of our waking hours. Our very languages and most of our social interactions are story-based. The space, where, the time, when, and the objects and actions, the what of our lives, along with the who, the how, and that ever-elusive why. Eavesdrop on any public transport or in any pub, stories or fragments of them are everywhere. These are the fundamental scaffolds of all our communications, direct in a real social space, or via our media. For the bulk of human history, our stories have been oral and oral, in a real space, in real time, with real people. We've had writing for only about 5,000 years, alphabets for about three, printing with movable type for nearly 600, mass communications for much less than that. We use and respond to the structures, forms, and that drive of stories instinctively, maybe with a dash of eager gullibility. Stories around actualities, events that supposedly happen to real people, and fictional stories, concocted yarns, and mixtures of both, often simultaneously. Here in coronavirus world, we're being bombarded with stories, news, journalism, fiction, propaganda via a myriad multiple channels. Let's take just one, right in the news now. In a virology lab in Wuhan, China, a microscopically small novel coronavirus escaped into the outside world. It spread by long-distance transport, primarily aviation, across the globe. That's the story. That narrative is out there. Not much detail, but our imaginations are potent. Another story is that a U.S. military person brought the virus to China. That's out there too. My central question is how do any of us forge a coherent, authentic view and image of our world during the COVID-19 pandemic? At any given moment, how do we choose our story and why? Well, (laughs) everyone's experience is, is completely individual. I've been a workaholic all my life and I've escaped from my own story and blocked it out when it got tragic or farcical. And um, I'm uh, finding that coronavirus world is 
forcing me to remember and reflect on and integrate my own story. It really is reevaluating, and I suppose it's my mum's death as well, but it really is reevaluating what your values are and, and how you want to live. I feel that people in my position have got the luxury of working out what matters. And people are working this out all the time. You're working out whether this person you live with you want to live with. You're working out, oh my God, I'm, I'm having a, I'm starting to have a relationship with my kids. Little things like, hey, I want to grow my own veggies. Back to grandma's time. Bunnings has run out of seedlings and seeds. And, and also there's a shortage of chooks because people are, my friend yeah. down the road, him and his son are building a chook house. We are, as everyone in the world, being forced to relook at our own story and to work out, hey, how would we like to live when we come out of this? I really have trouble with the whole idea of everything's a story. For me, this living in isolation thing that we're doing isn't that different to what I've been doing for the last 20-odd years. That's partly because, you know, largely I've been a writer of one sort or another for that time. But also, um, I was the stay-at-home parent with our son. So I, I was the one who was at home. So I've always done kind of the housework and the cooking and the shopping and get him to and from school with lots of help, I hasten to add. But being at home now... It, it is different. My wife's working from home all the time, so she's here all the time, which is great. My son Noah was with a dance company in France and then being an artist and a performing artist like that, that they were amongst the first things that were closed down when governments decided to take coronavirus seriously. So he came, he came back home and he's been living with us. He had to be in two weeks isolation when he got back from France, which involved us being separate from him within the house. As Peter said before, you know, it's very difficult not to give your kid a hug, especially when they've been away for a while. But I, I agree with Margot that there's still a reassessment that goes on. You know, I think we're kind of social creatures at the end of the day, and we need that physical proximity that screens can't give us. Tim, as you know, I'm pretty obsessed with the idea of framing its role and function in journalism, in that storytelling act in journalism. At the moment, we seem to have so many assumptions in all the stories we're getting in, in journalism. One of the big ones is the snapback, the bounce back. Mm. There's an awful lot of reaching for the binary. It's either this or it's that. We've had some shocking metaphors like, just like sunscreen, Scott Morrison talking about the COVID app. I guess we've all acknowledged over the years that complexity is not something that we really feel very comfortable with. We like something that's clear-cut, that's an either-or situation, and that's invaded most of the journalism stories. Ambiguity is something we're not comfortable with, and nuance is something that is very rare in everyday journalism. What do you think? It's absolutely true, but I mean, it's, it's sort of part of the human condition as well. I think it's exacerbated by a lot of our media and there is a bit of structural or institutional determinism in a lot of this. The telling of those stories kind of reads better or plays better when it's reduced to those sorts of binaries. And so there's this enormous temptation and pressure on particularly journalists to frame things in that particular way. I'm not exactly sure how we get past that. You know, it's it does become a bit of a a shouting match between yes, no, yes, no. You think about the time around the Iraq war, there's this real 
sense that they have to, whether it's for patriotic reasons or reasons of security or safety or whatever, that it somehow becomes dangerous to question the government in these situations. Go back through 7.30 report episodes over the last, say, month or so, and a lot of them are framed around this notion of managing the public's compliance with what the government wants us to do. There was a whole episode which started with the problem is not vaccines, the problem is not coronavirus per se, the problem is you, you have to stay home, you have to do this. You know, it's framed in those terms where it's it's managing how the public behave. And, and I have a real problem with that. This is the Canberra Times full page, page one today, right? Prime Minister Scott Morrison has a message for our readers. COVID safe. Tick on the logo. Let's make it happen. Yeah. I saw that and I was just, I mean, I don't want to say outrage anymore because one thing coronavirus has world's done is I just keep right away out of culture war stuff. It's so boring. Huh? We saw the outbreak on, of it on the insiders with Dan T and failure of leadership and everything. Boring. Crap. Yeah. All that stuff, hopefully, it will it will go away. But this stuff, I mean... Come on. I mean, there is no way I'm going to even think about downloading that app until I see legislation guaranteeing my privacy and criminalising breaches and giving me a right to damages for breach. That is basic. And the role of, of a responsible media in our society is to highlight that, for goodness yeah. sake, to say, Sight unseen, no uh, checks and balances. Scott Morrison wants to know where you are and when you're there is utterly outrageous. And as a former Fairfax paper in the Canberra Times, for God's sake, where they know about government overreach, I was just absolutely sickened. Without even having an argument about the efficacy of what the app is supposed to do, the whole way it's been sold, completely dishonest, I think. You know, as I think, Peter, you said before, you know, it's, it's sun cream is just such a terrible framing. And a lot of people out there seem to think that it's going to literally protect you, sort of real-time notification that you're near someone who's infected or something like that. You know, it's been oversold. And then wedding that to the idea of let's open up, guys. Yeah. You know. Also wedding it to, you know, it's your patriotic duty to do this, that you're letting everybody down if you don't. Scott Morrison has got no right to tell us to download this app until he's done his job and legislated protections. Yeah, I agree. Just a quick comment on the Dan Tian meltdown on Insiders on mm. Sunday, how often that's been replayed, that little bit where he rips into Daniel Andrews, it's replayed and replayed until it becomes almost audiovisual iconic. And then the little kicker, of course, he's withdrawn he's that withdrawn, now. Yeah. Not only that, you guys would know more about this for me um, living in Victoria, but watching the news in, in Queensland, Dan Andrews did not make an appearance. Dan Andrews did not bite back. Is that right? He did do a presser that day, I believe. He really washed over it. And he's sitting on like an 80% approval rating at the moment too. So That yeah. is spot on. And it is my firm opinion that he did the right thing by not escalating and that people do not want this name-calling bullshit at the moment. No, they they really don't. want, And it's not as though they want consensus. They want to hear debates, but they don't want bullshit because this is a situation where we have to work together as a country and it's really, really simple. And I think there is a possibility that politics may change. Hopefully, hopefully, praying, praying. 
This is Transit Zone, the podcast from Coronavirus World, Margot. This is what's on my mind. We all faced a sudden evolving question when coronavirus ran around the world to occupy all our lives. Where exactly is home and why? Nations ask their people to return home before they close their borders. Citizenship, the criteria, the legal right to belong. Then all states bar New South Wales and Victoria close their borders. First, Tasmania, South Australia, Western Australia and Queensland said only residents of their state could enter after closure. Then Queensland said even they would need a permit and WA did a hard border closure. Western Australians could no longer come home. In WA, there's a short exemption to visit a seriously ill relative or attend a funeral. So where your family and friendships are also comes into play in the notion of home. Yet it's more than that. A friend of mine was devastated when WA closed its border hard. She's fifth generation of a pioneer family in the Wheatbelt, and she knows exactly where home is, despite living in Sydney for 20 years. Another friend says she belongs to three places, Canberra, where she grew up and her parents live, Melbourne, where she lives, and the extended family's holiday home on the New South Wales south coast. WA is the only state to create internal borders, five regions where residents must stay in place. In Queensland, there was a push for a North Queensland border, and regional tourism towns told visitors mainstays of their economies to stay away, even those with a holiday home there. Anastasia asked us to stay in our suburbs, and I prefer to shop local now. I'm getting to know the supermarket workers, the haircutters, and the shoppers. Somehow social distancing and a common enemy makes life outside your house more intimate, and for the first time since I moved from Canberra to Narang to live with mum, it began to feel like home. Since she died in February, I've been packing up her things and mine because my home will be sold and I'll move to New South Wales where my best friend wants me. But I will always feel a Queenslander and I don't want her borders ever closed to me. So I'd like to do an episode about the meaning of home in coronavirus world. And I'm looking around for someone who knows a lot about this um, to be a guest. If you've got any ideas, please let me know by the email. My concept of home has been knocked about enormously over this last six weeks. Yeah, it's it's an interesting... I'm, I'm really interested in this. It seems particularly prevalent amongst Queenslanders of this attachment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right, because it's just like West Australians. We're the, we're the, we're the, border, we're the border states and, um, I guess and we, know, we, know, we know those Southerners are out to get us. Look, even even South Australia, you get, I lived there for five years and you get a fair bit of that, you know. Um, I was really struck when, the, when Western Australia closed their borders, the Premier literally said, we don't want you here <laughs> to the rest of the country, you know. It wasn't just, you know, look, we have to close down because of this unfortunate situation. It was, we don't want you here. I'm sure that played very well over there. point I was making there, Tim, is when we did the hard border closure... That meant that people who actually lived in WA couldn't come. Yeah, that's right. Like that, that, that got that was really, really freaky, really, really freaky to people who who core to their identity is that they're West Australians, or in my friend's case, you know, a particular region in the Wheatbelt. Yeah. that is her home, and she is that's excluded fine. from her home. It, I just find this whole thing really, really fascinating. There's that attachment to Queensland that never goes away. And I think Margot's probably right in explaining that, that it is, it's that sense of fairly marginalised from, I guess, the triangle, the Canberra-Melbourne-Sydney triangle or something like that, is it? No, there's there's more to it than that because if, if you look at the two big states, New South Wales and Victoria, Victorians hate Sydney 
and and Sydney hates Melbourne. So there's a strong identity between the the top two That's true. In, in terms of population and and and, and development. I love Melbourne, absolutely love Melbourne, but I love Sydney too. I've got a lot of time for Canberra as well. I don't feel like I've got any hostility <laughs> towards these these places. The two years I got to spend a fair bit of time in Brisbane, I loved Brisbane. I thought it was fantastic. I, I really enjoyed going up there. I just don't feel that absolute devotion to one place or the other. I left Queensland for the first time when I was 28 and I got my um, a job at the Sydney Morning Herald and I, I drove down and I'll never forget those mountains that are cut out as you cut out of the and the roads cut out and the, the hugeness of it as I was approaching Sydney mm. and I was so scared and then huh. I spent the next sort of 20 I never drove in Sydney because it was too scary and then the, the next you know 20 years or whatever I was sort of Sydney Sydney Canberra I was exiled but I tell you what, I knew every single day that I was a Queenslander because I thought differently to Southerners on all sorts of issues and I, I couldn't stand their, their class divisions and their snobbery and their superficiality. And so I, I felt like a Queenslander when oh, I went good. south, in my mind anyway. There's a disproportionate number of journalists from Western Australia and, and Queensland who do different things when it comes to politics and have different obsessions. And everyone who met me knew I was a Queenslander. They could just tell, including accent. And it was like, yep, I'm an outsider. But the way I looked at it was, I'm so glad. Tim, don't forget that if you're in Cairns, the Brisbane people are the Southerners. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Still a, the great decentralised state, not only along the coast, but inland as yeah, well. Yeah, that's true. Time for your final comments, Margot. I am reading a book by Pema Chodron, 1972, called The Places That Scare You, A Guide to Fearlessness in Difficult Times. And an ex lent it to me about 25 years ago, and I uncovered it in my packing. And she said, I can read it again, then send it back. It is just, just perfect for these times. It's a series of lyrical essays. She's a, an American um, Tibetan Buddhist fan of Rinpoche. This is the quote I would like to give you. This is the quote that I love and that I'm trying to, trying to live by at the moment. Today is today and now it is new. If we stop observing change, then we stop seeing everything as new. In other words, coronavirus is our chance to live in the moment, be alert, be flexible and fully experience the limited nature, the small point in time that is life. Tim, what are you reading and listening to at the moment? I'm just reading an enormous amount at the moment about the nature of work. I'm trying to get my head around how what we're going through is going to change the work that we do. I'm very interested in technological change and, and the relationship between technological change and recessions because we're about to go through a huge recession how that affects work and and how it's going to exacerbate trends that were already present in the economy. I've sort of got in mind a new book on the future of work, which is stuff I've been writing about for a while now. Not just the technological change, but the social change. I'm very interested in those issues at the moment. I've been going through old vinyls, my son <laughs> and I... Uh, share about a thousand vinyls. You imagine my eclectic mix of vinyls from my broadcasting days, and go. It's just been a great exercise. Those great big pictures on the covers—they bring back That's primal so memories mm, almost. Yeah. And I found just one. I just want to mention one. I found a, a violinist who just lifts my spirits. His name's. 
Papa John Creech, you may know him from Hot Tuna and uh, Jefferson Airplane and Jefferson Starship. Anyway, putting him on the old turntable, that helped. Cool. I also listened to an internet radio station, it's actually a real radio station, I first listened to in Paris in the mid-70s called FIP. I just couldn't believe it. Listening to it, it was the most eclectic radio station, music station I'd ever heard. Beautiful programming. It's still going, it's on the internet, and it's often on in our house. So I've been listening to that. One recommendation, the health activist Leslie Russell has a really excellent article in the Inside Story Online magazine. It's probably one of the best that I've read for disentangling some of the data and and the information we're getting about coronavirus globally. Well, Tim and Margot, that's episode one of Transit Zone. As everyone seems to be saying, we're apart, but we're together. Next week on the program, Tim, we have our first guest. Yeah, I've been talking to, we'll be talking to Melbourne lawyer and human rights advocate, Lizzie O'Shea. She has a book out at the moment called Future Histories, which is a fantastic read. I'd recommend anybody have a look at it. It's about debates we're having now about digital technology. And she'll be talking about issues around privacy and surveillance. And of course, we'll have to talk in that context, we'll have to talk about the COVID Safe app as well. I would be very interested to find out from Lizzie about how these apps work in in different countries, because I think the response to them tells a hell of a lot about national character and about the nature of the governments in each country. And the thing about the global nature of of our coronavirus world experience is that we can actually go, whoa, you know, we've actually got a a real-time paradigm or, or, or sort of spreadsheet or map of how everyone does government and their relationship uh, with government and and how each society either works or, or doesn't work when there's a, a national crisis or, or a global crisis. Margot Kingston in Narang on the Gold Coast hinterland and Tim Dumlop in Melbourne. As Margot and Tim suggested, we really want to hear from you. Give us your suggestions, give us your comments, and later down the track, perhaps your own audio essays, which we'll put into the podcast. Love to hear from you. Here's the email. You can send it to us at transitzonepod at gmail.com. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter now too, at transitzonepod. That's the Twitter handle, at transitzonepod. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for your company today, and we'll catch you again soon in the Transit Zone.